So this evening I'd like to take some time to reflect a little bit more upon uh, what we mean by the word mindfulness and to look at a little bit more depth, the way that this word mindfulness is used in um, both Buddhist meditation and Buddhist psychology. I'm sure it's pretty evident to us all that the, the, the word mindfulness has really become increasingly rooted and naturalized in our culture and our vocabulary. In fact, I don't know, in, in England, you know, folk don't even think you're particularly weird anymore if you talk about mindfulness, you know. They, they sort of have a sense that they know what's going on. And it's very much part both of the, the culture of intensive retreat situations, like here at Gaia House, and of course very much part in a, in a growing spectrum of therapeutic applications. I mean, for sure, you know, you go into a bookstore in Totnes and you'll find the book pretty much mindfulness about all and everything, you know, mindful parenting, mindful relating, mindful surfing. There's even a mindful road racing book out. You know, in recent hours in my dentist's office and I looked down, you know, at the usual array of magazines and there it was, mindfulness in three easy steps, which I thought was really good if it was that easy. Mm-hmm. But mindfulness is also a word that's really used in a lot of different ways, isn't it? We don't necessarily all have the same understanding of what we mean by the word mindfulness. Um, You know, sometimes mindfulness is almost talked about just as something we do. In fact, I've heard people say that, you know, that I do mindfulness, you know, as if it's a kind of package that we pick up and put down. I've heard the word mindfulness used in, in, in something almost of a judgmental way, a kind of scolding way, you know, that if you, you drop your salad on, in the dining room, you know, inwardly, and you imagine from outwardly these voices kind of scolding, saying, that wasn't very mindful, was it? You know, almost as if mindfulness, uh, you know, an accident becomes a sort of personal failure of mindfulness. That if we're mindful in our lives, we're not allowed to have accidents anymore. You know, we should be more somehow in control of things. I've heard mindfulness used almost interchangeably with watching or observing, or attention, almost suggesting a kind of removed position of neutral observation. Now, I think probably one thing that we probably all would uh, agree upon is that the cultivation of mindfulness can have a very profound effect upon people's hearts, minds, and lives whether it's in an intensive retreat environment or a therapeutic environment. The mindfulness is is a key to transformation. It's part of the landscape 
for many people in their lives, of transforming very deeply embedded psychological and emotional habits that cause distress and suffering. Mindfulness, it seems, in many environments is a key to transforming the way that we see ourselves, the, how we live, how we relate, how we think. And certainly in the way that I think it's used perhaps well and wisely, mindfulness is not something we do. But rather it's, it's a kind of, it, it's a way of understanding. It's a very specific orientation of the mind in relation to all things, in relationship to all things. There is an orientation of the mind. Sometimes I think there's a, mindfulness is also held with a certain kind of you know, sense of mystery. Like we know it can be very effective. How does it work? What is actually happening inwardly? What are the kind of shifts that are happening inwardly in people's uh, cognition, in their perceptions, in their way of seeing, that enable it to be effective. So what I'd like to endeavor to do this evening is to explore the way that mindfulness is used in Buddhist psychology. In a way that to understand how certainly in Buddhist psychology mindfulness is 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 not one dimensional, but rather it is a very rich fabric. And you know, in my understanding, it is the fact that it is not one dimensional um, that goes some way to explaining how mindfulness is effective and how it can be transforming but also how challenging the landscape of mindfulness can be. The first thing I'd like to mention is that the word sati in Pali, which is the language in which the early discourses were recorded, the word sati, or translated as mindfulness or heartfulness, is probably the most frequently used word in the early texts. But it's also important to mention that this word sati, or mindfulness, is not the same as another frequently used word in the early texts, which is manaskara, or attention. So there is a difference made between mindfulness and attention. Now, it is clear that Attention is a quality and a factor of all of our minds. It can be skillful, it can be unskillful, it can be wholesome, it can be unwholesome. I mean, we all need attention, don't we, to to learn anything in this life, to learn how to function, to learn skills, to be educated, to remember things. We all need the faculty of attention. It's in Buddhist psychology, it's simply one of the faculties of our mind. I mean, we need attention just to prevent ourselves from being run over by a bus. You know, so attention really um, occupies a more neutral role is not the same right word. Because attention can be skillful and wholesome. You know, we use attention to learn how to play the piano, to listen to another person, to 
care for a child. Attention can also be unskillful or unwholesome in the sense that burglars and carjackers and snipers and shoplifters all have finely honed attention skills. Now, when I use the words wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful, this it's very important to understand it. This is not implying good, bad, right, wrong. What it is suggesting is that the faculty of attention arises from um, a ground composed of intention, habits, preferences, tendencies, all of these are the background of attention. And the background of attention is going to shape the kind of attention we develop, whether it's skillful or unskillful. And the background of attention then also shapes the outcome of how we apply our attention. So attention is not existing in isolation. That's the basic point here. Attention arises from a background. It's shaped by that background. And depending on how attention is shaped, it will have a certain outcome, which may also be wholesome or unwholesome, depending on the shaping factors. Attention may be something that... um, leads to the perpetuation of pain and conflict or the end of it. So when I, when I use the, the, these words, skillful and unskillful, it's simply referring to the kind of intention and attention that leads to distress or that leads to the end of distress. Now the word sati in, or mindfulness in Buddhist psychology and practice It's always a relational word. Mindfulness never stands alone. But sati, or mindfulness, is in an ongoing dialogue with a range of other qualities and factors, just like attention is. But mindfulness, in the way it's used in terms of practice in Buddhist psychology, is in an ongoing conversation, dialogue, cooperation with intention, with effort, with ethics, with investigation, with calmness, with equanimity. That it's said to be this dialogue or this kind of composite that surrounds mindfulness, that this is the fabric of insight. As such, in Buddhist psychology, mindfulness is always a wholesome quality. It is always a wholesome quality because it is shaped by the wholesome. It has a direction, a very specific direction, very different than shoplifting. It has a very specific direction, which is the easing of pain and distress, of liberating the heart. It is rooted in ethics. So mindfulness is always a wholesome quality. Mindfulness has a direction of uprooting forms of distress or the sources of distress in terms of anxiety and confusion. 
Mindfulness, so you could say, is a quality that has a lot of friends. It has a is a quality that has a lot of friends. Mindful never mindfulness never arrives alone. And in many ways, it's the cooperation with these friends that gives mindfulness the power to transform. Now, these friends of mindfulness, I think, in a very kind of implicit way, are very much woven into the all mindfulness-based applications, actually. In Buddhist psychology, these friends of mindfulness are used in a very explicit way as qualities that are very consciously cultivated. So the way that mindfulness is used in Buddhist psychology is that mindfulness is certainly not attitudinally or emotionally neutral, and I want to look at why that is so important. So what's the first job of mindfulness? Let me think about it. What is really the first job of mindfulness? But my understanding is the first job of mindfulness is to illuminate the moment, to shine the light of attention upon the moment. Now, here, I'm sure today, you've had some very experientially direct sense of that. A time when you go out on your walking path. Now, think of a time when you go out on your walking path, and you walk up and down your walking path, but maybe your mind is a jumble of thoughts, you know, unfinished conversations, arguments, what's happening next week, unresolved issues. Your mind, in fact, can be so filled with all of those thoughts that the bell can ring and you can walk right through it. You know, you may not actually notice till suddenly you sort of wake up and see you're, you know, a lonely walker out there on the front lawn. But what you can see is that when the mind is so filled with that jumble, you know, you might, you might suddenly realize uh, that after 45 minutes, you might have this unwelcome awareness that you haven't felt your feet touch the ground. You haven't felt the air on your skin. You haven't seen the color of the flowers or, or seen the trees silhouetted against the sky. Another time, you go out and you walk on exactly that same path. And yet the mind state is not veiling. You feel very present. You feel very connected. You feel a certain wholeheartedness of mindfulness. And it is a completely different experience. You see. You feel you hear, you touch, and you can almost get the sense of how the mindfulness is almost waking up the world. It is illuminating the world. It's almost waking up the world into a sense of immediacy and aliveness. Now, often in the work and practice we do, we refer to that experience as being present, you know, as really being fully present. And you can see that you sort of go in and out of that experience, don't you? Sometimes it seems to be there. Sometimes it seems really somewhere else, you know. But it's also true that with practice, there is a more sustained sense of that aliveness. You know, the more sustained sense of that immediacy and that sense of how the mindfulness is actually illuminating the moment. It's a sense of intimacy with it. Now, what you experience, of course, in relationship to the outer world with mindfulness, it is exactly, of course, the same mechanism in relationship 
to your inner world, to the life of your body, the life of your mind, the life of your heart. You really have a sense of how mindfulness is bringing this sort of breadth and depth of illumination. So what is the job of mindfulness in relationship to your inner world? Well, actually, much the same as in relationship to the external world. It's to be, to be more intimate with what's actually going on, to actually know what is going on inwardly, to be present with what is happening. Now, you have probably noticed with mindfulness, it has a rather unconditional nature in the sense that you can't choose really only to be mindful of the lovely and not of the unlovely. You know, it's not really how mindfulness works. I mean, if you're actually mindful, if you're actually awake, you are awake to all things. You know, you are awake to all experience. You are mindful of all experience. Although, heroically, we might try to actually only be mindful of the lovely. The very nature of sati, the very nature of mindfulness, is is all-encompassing, all-embracing, and it will illuminate all things in the mind, body, and heart equally. Now, this is not always easy. We really have to acknowledge that. This is not always welcome to ourselves, and probably you've experienced this with many of your patients and clients. You know, how many times I hear on retreats people say, you know, I was happier before I began practicing. They only say that for a short time, but I have heard, I was happier before I began to be mindful. It's a very curious thing to say. But how many times I hear people say, I never knew. I never knew how mindless I was until I started trying to be mindful. You know, I never knew how forgetful I was until I started trying to be present. People say, you know, it goes on and on. You know, I never knew how judgmental or habitual or greedy or intolerant I was until I started trying to be more mindful and cultivating more mindfulness. So isn't it true that mindfulness seems to all open this door and we kind of imagine it's always going to be fantastic news and actually sometimes it's really quite challenging. When we begin to sit and practice, I think in the beginning it can often feel like we're facing far more than is unlovely than is lovely. I mean, we see what John spoke about this morning, you know, those the winds of the hindrance factors, you know, of aversion and and sloth and torpor and, you know, doubt and restlessness. Now, all of these, all of these are really difficult mental states to be with. You know, they're kind of really difficult mental states to be interested in, aren't they? I mean, it's not like we get up in the morning and think, great, yeah, whole day of being interested in sloth and torpor, you know, I can hardly wait, you know. It's kind of like, ugh, is it there? You know, is it gone yet? You know, 
But it's hard to have that enthusiasm or interest really to be with the difficult. And I know many people have spoken to me about this in their, in their therapeutic applications, you know, that when, be, when people begin, it's like, why? You want me to be more aware of pain in my body? You know, or you want me to be more aware of this really difficult mental state? I mean, logically, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Yet this is what mindfulness does. These hindrance factors are hard to be interested in, yet it's also obvious, pretty obvious the effect that they have on our minds and lives. But it's also clear that actually as the more mindfulness also seems to open the door to even more complex and powerful emotional states, memories, tendencies, wounded self of sense self image isn't it true that it just seems to allow the space for things to rise to the surface you know often kind of difficult states and emotions that may have really been held at a distance by being mindless by pushing them away so mindfulness allows the space in a way for all things to rise to the surface some of them have a very long history. Now, my, certainly my, my feeling in teaching is that I would never encourage somebody just to kind of watch this. Just watch this. You know, it could be a prescription for somebody in the face of very difficult material, to, uh, almost a prescription for helplessness. In fact, just to look at depression or sadness in the, with a kind of cold observation could really send us into an abyss of, of depression and despair. Now this is why, certainly in Buddhist psychology, there's a deep, deep appreciation of how much hurt and pain and woundedness people can carry around in their beings. And it is why mindfulness in, in Buddhist psychology never does stand alone, but really needs its friends and its allies that allows the possibility of understanding and being with and finding freedom from the difficult, finding the way to see and live in new ways. So I want to look at the friends of mindfulness. The first of them we've already a little bit mentioned today. The first of the friends of mindfulness is certainly kindness and compassion. And the Buddha describes kindness as the necessary foundation for all meditation practice. He describes kindness and compassion as being the very ground from which mindfulness arises. And kindness is really necessary to counter the tendency to flee from the difficult. Kindness is really necessary to, to counter the very human response to pain, which is to resist, to fear, to have aversion. Kindness is very necessary to counter our inclination to abandon the difficult. It's a very classic statement in Buddhist teaching where the Buddha says, hatred is not ha healed by hatred, 
but by love alone is hatred healed. This is the eternal law. So we hear that and we think, well, how does that apply to mindfulness, whether it's mindfulness in a retreat, whether it's mindfulness in a therapeutic situation? Because we're not going to encourage anyone to love pain, are we? We're not going to encourage anyone to love a a sense of woundedness. But we are going to encourage people to see that aversion to the painful and the difficult is actually a kind of hatred and ill will. It is a rejection. You know, it is a kind of abandonment, which only compounds and makes more intractable the painful and the difficult that we inevitably meet in our lives. So what does kindness look like? And, and, you know, we will talk about this much more. But the way that we use kindness, certainly in this teaching and practice, is not as a kind of emotional response, very much more as an attitude and as an intention. So kindness at times is simply the willingness to meet the difficult, to turn our attention towards the difficult rather than to flee. That turning towards rather than away from is very counterintuitive. Yet isn't it the first step of healing? Isn't it the first step of understanding and the first step of transformation? Kindness is at times the simple willingness to to touch the difficult with mindfulness, with curiosity, rather than condemnation and judgment. Kindness is is at times the the willingness to take the blame out of pain. You know, sometimes I hear people say, you know, if I was a better person, you know, if I was a more worthy person, if I was more perfect, I wouldn't have this pain, you know. I wouldn't have this distress. I wouldn't feel like this. How much blame there is at times in pain. Kindness at times is simple, the willingness to care about what's going on rather than to abandon it. Without kindness, mindfulness can become yet another kind of weapon of blame and accusation. You know, we open that door, the difficult surfaces, and without kindness, that surfacing of the difficult can be met with this mind that says, oh, I am so useless, I am so imperfect, I am so hopeless, you know, I am such a failure. And it is the balancing or the weaving of kindness attitudinally into mindfulness that takes the blame out of the difficult. I think almost, you know, in, it's almost like we learn the landscape of kindness intuitively But to learn the landscape of mindfulness, I feel, is almost a journey of reteaching and re-educating our minds to befriend and to welcome, to cultivate and to embody kindness. It's a very major inner shift. So I want to look at some of the other allies of mindfulness that are part of this same fabric. So if we say that the work of mindfulness is to illuminate, the work of mindfulness is to know, the work of the second friend of mindfulness is investigation. It's to understand. 
So mindfulness is to know and to understand. Now, investigations, a little bit we talked about this afternoon, you know, has a very wide spectrum of applications in the context of mindfulness of practice. But it's really directed towards understanding the nature of what is really going on in the mind and the body, to touch what is going on. That is the experiential investigation we talked about this afternoon. Now, it's also really an understanding in terms of the mind in our world. Investigation is really understanding and getting a felt sense of how our world of the moment is being shaped and formed. You know, how a smell of garlic from the kitchen can catapult you into a world of memories where you divorced your spouse in an Italian restaurant and all the associations of failure and disappointment that all just seem to flood in. One smell of garlic and I am an inadequate husband, wife. You know, that journey can be so fast. That's my world of the moment. We don't even know how I got there. We don't even remember we smelled the garlic. We, we, you know, we, we, an unreturned smile. Well, isn't that an interesting one on retreats? You know, where you smile at someone and they don't smile back in the silence, you know. Well, doesn't that open a possible doorway? You know, oh, I've oh, nobody's ever loved me, you know. And, you know, I remember all the times in my life I've been rejected and hurt, you know, and I've never been good at relationships, you know, I'm never going to be any good... It was an unreturned smile. Suddenly we end up in this place, we see a rabbit on the lawn, you know, and we remember all these lovely idyllic childhood memories, and before we know it, you know, we're, we're in Cornwall on a farm somewhere, you know. Where is she? How did I end up there? A pain in the knee can trigger a kind of psychological journey, you know, which lands us in the emergency ward, you know, in a lifetime on crutches you know, before we've even really felt what is going on. This is our world of the moment. Have you noticed your world of the moment being shaped and formed? And every time it's shaped, doesn't it just feel so true and eternal? This is is how I've always been, you know, and it's always going to be this way. It feels to have so much authority. It's my world of the moment. Now, the great gift of mindful investigation, which is not just thinking, it's deeply experiential. You know what I think the greatest gift is? It takes a sense of bewilderment out of our life. That sense of confusion out of our life. It's no longer a mystery. You know, our mind doesn't feel like a mystery anymore. We no longer ask the question, how on earth did I end up here? Which is often followed in a certain kind of subtext again. You know, how did I end up here again? You know, how did I end up so angry again? How did I end up so fearful again? How did I end up so depressed again? You know, we begin to know because mindfulness is that question of knowing what's going on. We begin to know actually how we ended up here. We begin to be able to trace that process. Now, one of the gifts clearly of being more mindful is it starts to slow down this process, doesn't it? 
It's just not so knee-jerk. It's not so fast. It's not so reactive. It starts to slow it down. And by slow, by being mindful and slowing the process down, we're actually starting to take that sense of bewilderment and confusion out. We're actually knowing how our world is being shaped. And you know what? Knowing is the beginning of the possibility of walking different pathways. If we don't know how things come into being, we actually also don't know that there are other pathways that can be walked. You know, slowing down is not just so that we can be a more sort of like, you know, increasingly despairing spectator on these disasters. You know, slowing down is to sense that possibility. One doorway opens and another doorway can open. There may be a different pathway to walk. Slowing down can, you know, walking that different pathway may be so simple as, you know, being able to stay with the landscape of the painful knee rather than the imagining of this terrible outcome and then taking wise response. You know, being mindful of the process might mean that we can see the rabbit on the lawn and, it's, and really enjoy the rabbit on the lawn but really is a rabbit on the lawn. You know, the unreturned smile may simply stay as an unreturned smile rather than a personal indictment of our inadequacy. It's just an unreturned smile. And the third of the ally of, allies of mindfulness, which is very much rooted in this sense of knowing what is going on, is how we engage with what is going on. Because the third of the allies of mindfulness is what certainly in, the, in Buddhist teaching is called mindful energy or mindful effort. To be stuck in a sense of bewilderment brings inertia and a sense of hopelessness and weariness. To know there are possibilities of walking different pathways starts to wake us up. It starts to bring more energy into being. Now, in Buddhist psychology, there's a whole spectrum of nuances to this word mindful energy. You know, they include courage, perseverance, patience, dedication, commitment. Isn't it true that we often feel short of energy? And, you know, how many times have you listened to your clients and patients who just kind of say how hard it is to get out of bed in the morning? You know, like there's not the energy doesn't feel to be the available energy to, to get out of bed in the morning, to really undertake a pathway. I think the very important question is, how do we use the energy that we have? I mean, we assume there's a shortage of energy. And I guess it's really important to question whether that's true and how we actually use the energy we have. For example, we can put an enormous amount of energy into fantasy. It takes a lot of energy to sustain a good fantasy. We can take and put an enormous amount of energy into rumination and proliferation and obsession. It takes a lot of energy to sustain them. We can put an enormous amount of energy into pursuing things we want or getting rid of things we don't want. I think the real question is, is how wise and how conscious is the, do we use the energy we have or how unwise and unconscious do we use it? 
And if we look at here, you know, I mean, it's very clear none of us are running marathons here. You know, but we can feel so exhausted, you know. And really, you know, what do we do? I mean, we're sitting around. We are basically sitting around here, you know. And occasionally we have a little walk, you know. And then we come around and sit some more. I mean, isn't it amazing? And we can feel so tired. How tired do you feel right now? What have you done today? (laughs) (laughs) And what have any of us done today? You've actually just sat around all day long and you may be having a really hard time right now keeping your eyes open. And my son, when he was a teenager, he used to take, to take pictures of my daily schedule on retreats and email it to all his friends, you know, because they thought this was the ideal job description, you know. <laughs> look, she's sitting around, she's sitting. Oh, look, she's got a little what? Oh, look, she's sitting again. Oh, lunch, you know, sitting more, you know. And, you know, to 17-year-olds, this looked like the idyllic job. You know, you just sit and eat, you know, a little walk in between. And some sleep. But no, we can feel so tired. Now, I want to mention, as we mentioned today, there's a real honest tiredness that can arise in a retreat. You know, some of you have been overworked, over-demanded upon, overextended. What you feel when you arrive here is what I call an honest tiredness. You know, it's honest. You know, it hasn't got any underlying stuff going on. It's just tired. I also want to say that what we're doing here about all this stuff of sitting around is actually probably one of the most restful things you could do. Probably one of the most restorative things that you could do. But there's another kind of tiredness, and I'm certainly not going to call it dishonest tiredness, but there's another kind of exhaustion that arises which is really born of forcing and struggling and pushing away and you know, ruminating, obsessing. What I really want to say about energy here, it's very important to notice the links between interest, intention, and energy. You know, if we showed like a really good movie in here tonight, instead of me, you know, you might actually find this very natural energy starts to rise because there's interest and because there's intention. So what are we trying to do in our practice? What are you trying to do in your work? Aren't we trying to be interested, you know, sort of invigorate some interest in the possibility of well-being and peace and freedom and happiness? You know, doesn't then a more natural energy arise? You know, can you imagine if you came in here and we shouted at you all day, you know? Be awake, you know. (laughs) Be peaceful, you know. Wake up. You know, I mean, you're not going to be that interested, are you? You imagine if you had clients come into your office, you know, and you shout at them. You know? You're not going to be that interested. There's not going to be any energy at all. Interest, I think, has to draw on something very, very, very deep within us. The real possibility of an abiding freedom of heart. The real possibility of an abiding intimacy and abiding connectedness. If we can find that some glimmer of that sense of possibility, if we can sometimes offer that glimmer of possibility to others, there can arise a very more unforced energy and intention. 
I mean, energy is not only a way of focusing our attention, it's actually a way of focusing some of the insights that are born of some of the investigations that have happened. You know? I mean, you've probably noticed that things change, don't you? Your mental states have probably changed really many times today. You know, your experience has probably changed many times today. What does it do to focus that insight in the times when you're in the midst of some great mental state that feels it's going to last forever? In, insight actually needs some energy to actually apply and focus and remember. Remember. You know, this too, like all the other states that went before, is actually going to change. The Buddha often described the path of developing mindfulness, the path of developing wakefulness, as swimming against the tide. And it's the tide of our habit pattern, sometimes lifelong. I know it would be really, really nice, you know, if we could just say to everybody on retreats, you know, just just show up and hang out for a while, you know, and everything will be revealed. Actually, for most of us, that's unrealistic. And energy, or mindful energy, mindful effort, is what engages mindfulness with our life, inwardly and outwardly. Energy, mindful energy and effort is what actually rescues mindfulness from passivity. And that has huge implications, I think, in our practice, in our lives. Can you imagine without energy and effort, without some way of engaging with what is going on, can you imagine what a terrible sentence it would be to suddenly wake up one morning and realize you're going to be eternally this mindful spectator upon your own disasters? Wouldn't that be terrible? Effort is the way that we're engaging, the way that we're exploring the possibilities of walking different pathways. Effort is engaged with really looking at what is cultivated in this practice, our capacity for clarity, our capacity for spaciousness. I have to talk faster here. Or something. And the next ally of mindfulness, this is, may actually sound like a strange one to you, is joy. It's actually joy. Traditionally, one is, this is the great allies of mindfulness, is joy. Now, when I talk about joy, I don't want you to imagine that, you know, these huge inflated states of ecstasy or bliss or elation. Imagine telling someone who's depressed to connect with rapture or bliss. It's not going to be helpful. Imagine telling yourself in the midst of an aversion attack, be happy, be happy. But I think here it is so important to acknowledge the spirit in which we develop mindfulness will have an impact upon its outcome. This practice is never meant to be a practice of cultivating grimness or downcast determination. You know, sometimes I see in meditation practice, people can be way overly earnest. Like they're just trying too hard. 
It's trying too hard. And then that turns into this sort of grimness, you know, like I have so much to do and the burden is so heavy and, you know, so much to get to. And there's something in that, I think, that is going to influence the outcome of our practice. A friend of mine called it the march of the condemned. (laughs) It is not really a very good attitude. So, strangely, you know, I would like you to just remember how much this is embedded in the mindfulness programs. You know, think about the pleasant calendar, the pleasant event calendar. What are you teaching people to do? Teaching people to taste the possibility of joy, of happiness, of what is well. Now, it's interesting, strangely, though we would all like to have more joy in our life and wish there was a shortcut, we almost have to reteach ourselves our capacity for joy. To acknowledge that our practice is not made more virtuous by the suffering we can endure, but by the degree of ease and well-being that we bring into being. So how do we begin to taste joy? I mean, I don't know, maybe you are different, but I think for many of us, we are problem-centered. We are problem-centered. We tend to notice what's wrong and unwell much more than we notice what is well. Is that true for any of you? I mean, give a lot of, you know, even like you you think about even with loving-kindness practice, you know, or or how often we think much more about the people we struggle with than the people we love, you know, how we can actually really notice what is imperfect much more than we notice what really is well. I really noticed this in myself, you know, I remember years ago teaching here with a friend of mine, and I turned up in the morning, and I was really pretty grumpy. And he's, you know, he met me, you know, with this big smile, you know, and I sort of felt like kicking him in the leg, you know, because I was really grumpy. And he said, well, you know, tell me, you know, like, what's really gone well this morning? You know, did your car start? Yeah. I said, yeah. He said, that's great. He said, do you have some breakfast? I said, yeah. He said, not wonderful. You know, do you manage to make it here without a flat tire? Yeah, I did. You know, your kids, well, yeah, actually they're pretty good, you know. And the more he kind of asked me these questions, I could feel myself sort of, lightening this sense of load. And this is not to get into a kind of Pollyannish type thinking or, or, you know, to deny the difficult. It's not to do this thing of, you know, everything's so wonderful and neat. You know, there's a lot of pain and difficulty in this world. But notice how we can, by focusing only on that which is broken, really cultivate a contracted mind. Don't think about you know I work when I work with people with chronic pain, and, you know, and if you have lived with chronic pain for a long time, you know, chronic pain can pretty much fill the landscape of your mind. And one of the ways I encourage people to work with chronic pain is actually to notice what parts of their body don't hurt. Is it the touch of your lips together? Is it the palm of your hand? It's not to diminish the pain, but it's to know the pain is not the whole of your experience, that actually there are parts of your body that are not in pain. Do we notice when, you know, do we notice what it feels like? 
actually in the midst of mental states to actually taste the apple on our tongue, to listen to the sounds of the bird. You know, a lot of times in this practice, I think we really need to know how to gladden our hearts, how to brighten our minds, how to gladden our hearts. And you know, sometimes this actually takes a little bit of intention and effort to really stand outside and just really drink in, you know, the loveliness to drink in the loveliness of the sight of the trees and the grass and the colors and the people, to notice that which is well. Isn't it quite good actually to notice in yourself, you know, the moment you've held a door open for someone today, the moment you've smiled in kindness at someone, the moment you've reached out. It's exploring what is possible and where we are making the home of our attention. When we notice there is contractedness, to notice what lives outside of that contractedness. Now, cultivating joy, even these small tastes, is not a denial, as I said, of the difficult. But it's knowing that the difficult becomes much more possible to embrace in a mind that is relaxed and spacious. That the difficult is part of the landscape of our mind and our heart and not the whole. But joy opens the door to another of the allies of mindfulness, which is calm. Calm, serenity. And I think when we hear about calm, you know, we automatically think about it as a state opposite to agitation or disturbance. But, you know, mindfulness is not really concerned with achieving states because states come and go according to conditions. Mindfulness is concerned about how we are in relationship to all states. So when we talk about calm, we're actually, it's very helpful to translate this into a verb. Calming. Calming. So what are we calming in our practice? Well, we're calming everything that is agitated. We're calming the body. We're calming the mind. We're calming thinking. We're calming anxiety. We're calming rumination. We're calming obsession. We're calming everything that feels agitated. How do we do that? By paying attention to it. By really being aware of what we are feeding, that what we are feeding will grow. Calming is a willingness to embrace, to accept, to include, to step out of resistance and fear and condemnation. Calming is meeting what is. The willingness to meet what is. You can see how much in mindfulness practice, how much attention is paid to the body, being mindful of the body. You know, the body scans, the body sitting, the body breathing. Why? Because here within the body we learn many, many of the lessons of calming, of stepping out of the cycles of agitation, of being with one moment at a time, being with what is. These lessons that we learn in the body are the lessons that we bring to actually the life of our minds and hearts. Calming is very possible in all moments. You know, it's about learning how to stop. You know, you see the mind beginning to create waves and storms. What does it mean to stop? Feel your feet touch the ground. 
Listen to the sounds that come. Feel the touch of your hands on your legs. Feel just one breath from its beginning to its ending. This is the lesson of calming. It's the lesson of calming. Calming has a lot of relationship to one of the last of the two allies of mindfulness, which is attention, concentration. Concentration, attention is there to protect the mind. It's not there to shut down the mind, to dismiss the mind, but to protect the mind. What are we protecting our minds from? Not life, but from obsession, from preoccupation, from habit. How do we protect the mind? We pay attention to what is actual. We pay attention to the tangibility of the body, of the breathing, of the sense doors. We learn to step out of the cycles. The last of the great allies of mindfulness, and I really will just spend a little bit of time with this, is equanimity. It's sometimes translated as unshakable poise. In fact, in Buddhist teaching, equanimity is very much used interchangeably with freedom, with liberation. It's about not being governed. Now, I think sometimes when we hear the word equanimity, we kind of hear like indifference or not caring or, you know, this sort of very deadened inner life. But that's not how equanimity is used in this teaching. In fact, in the Zen tradition, or sometimes translated as being, in the Tibetan tradition, equally near all things. Equally near the painful, the pleasant. Equally near the lovely, the unlovely. Equally near praise and blame. And how does equanimity come into being? Because we are learning through many of the other allies of mindfulness to take the selfing out of experience. You know, when we think about the absence of equanimity, the extremes, the highs and lows, the praise, the blame, I'm pretty central in all of that. You know, taking the I out of its central position in experience allows us to be with experience as it is. Changing, arising and passing, met with sensitivity and appreciation, being intimate with but it's not actually all about me. It's not actually all about me, mine, and who I am or think I am. Equanimity is really born in the calming of the selfing that is, I think, really what allows us to be intimate with life, allows us to be intimate really with every moment. So what I've endeavored to do this evening is, is to really talk about how mindfulness, certainly in this teaching, has all of these allies, these friends, <coughs> that are really kind of like not separate practices. But I think they're really part of what the Buddha talks of as wise mindfulness, as samasati, okay? the wisdom of mindfulness, which really leads to understanding and to liberation. Thank you for your attention for so long. If we take just a moment quietly together and then, then we will have a walking period. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.